Welcome to Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Kos and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Eleveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. I'm Marcos Molitsis. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Kos The Brief. It's our weekly show about politics. I am running solo again today. Uh, Carrie Eleveld is on, she's on vacation. We get to do that in the summer. She'll be back next week, and she'll be back with Kara guest hosting. I'm going to take some, some unexpected time off because my son uh, just graduated from high school, and he's headed off to Fort Benning, Georgia, to finish his military training. He is in the uh, California National Guard. He is training to be an infantryman, and, and if all goes well, he might, be, he might get to train for some other cool stuff after infantry training. So I'm not going to be seeing him for a while. So uh, graciously, the brief team has given me uh, some time off to spend with my son these last few precious days. Got a great show today because if you are like me and almost any political progressive junkie, you've been riveted by the January 6th committee hearings. And so today, our guest is Daily Coast staff writer Brandy Buckman. She is one of the nation's preeminent authorities on the January 6th, has been covering it from day one, right, Brandy? Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Marcus. Thank you for having me. So this is, I mean, I'm not kidding when, when I think when I say that you've been covering this from the very, 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 very beginning of the insurrection itself. And I, we were joking in, the, in our company Slack that this is like your Super Bowl. Is that really what it feels like? It is. It's been a long time since we got here. You know, um, I definitely was covering this before the insurrection. I was covering Trump's push uh, to essentially say that the election was fraudulent and that voter fraud was widespread, stuck right with him through the election, stuck right with him after the election, and then heading right up to January 6th, where there was a lot of concern uh, in my newsroom at that time that things might not go according to plan. And then on the day of the 6th, I was in D.C. to cover the events at the Capitol, just the count itself. Um, and things kind of took a turn at that point, and I had to sort of adjust my schedule. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I've been there ever since, been covering this week ever since and i've been working on it with daily coast since october i'm not exaggerating or kidding or using hyperbole or or being even biased towards you know our our, our great writers at daily coast we hire brandy in large part because of the january 6 coverage understanding that it was some of the best anywhere and she has continued that at daily coast in fact if you if you go to her twitter account at brandy with an i buckman one n she has a guide to the January 6th committee, all the, all the major players that has been invaluable to me as I try to make sense of this all. And speaking of trying to make sense of this all, can you sort of summarize what exactly this committee is looking at? Why does it exist? So the reason why the committee exists is not just because there was a bunch of writers 
deface the building, threaten people, part of what is a larger picture that's being painted for the public with this committee. What the committee is trying to do is get just beyond the fact that Trump incited the insurrection on January 6th, but that he did it for a specific reason with a specific plan in place that was well-equipped, well-funded, well-organized, and that this is what they're looking to uncover, that uh, they have found evidence, which they say suggest there's a criminal element involved here, that there's criminal liability involved here, that he obstructed Congress, that he potentially defrauded the public by promoting the lie that he won the 2020 election, while full well knowing, as we just learned on Monday, uh, was revealed even even more detail, that he had plenty of credible evidence being given to him and information being given to him that no, he did not in fact win the election. So I think right now what we're seeing is the committee starting to really uncover what scheme was in place as all of this was happening. And that's what's important because it goes to the DOJ next. And so to be very, very clear, uh, the target is by all indications, Donald Trump, right? Yeah, I absolutely think that the target is Donald Trump. I think that, you know, whether or not you could argue it was his brainchild to overturn the election is one thing. But what we've been able to establish both through his own comments, through the record available in court filings and through the evidence that the committee has been presenting is that, you know, he had a direct role in this gambit to overturn the election. And what uh, Representative Raskin described to me as was a self-coup. You know, he knew what he wanted to do. He knew he wanted to stay in power and he knew that he didn't have much of a leg to stand on, uh, given that the fraud, you know, things that he was claiming just were not accurate, were just not factual or real. And so this is what we're really getting at is, I think the committee is really invested in developing legislation that would make it so that somebody like a Donald Trump or Donald Trump himself potentially couldn't do these same things again. And that our constitution has even firmer guardrails in place against aspiring autocrats. So Donald Trump releases 12 page sort of rebuttal to the committee. And I, I'm going to be honest, I think I got through like one and a half pages because <laughs> it was, it was unreadable dribble. But one of the things he says right at the top is that this is a partisan kangaroo court, I think is what he, what he right. called it. And he said, partisan, every witness so far in all the testimony that's been stated has been partisan, right? It's been right. Republicans, including Ivanka Trump, his daughter. So one of, one of the ironies of this entire committee and its existence is that if it it only exists in the, in the form that it does right now. It's because Donald Trump got in the way. Because originally this was going to be a, a true, like a bipartisan with Republicans having half the seats and they could have picked whoever they wanted. So you would have had like Jim Jordan and other pro-Trump crazy. Marjorie Taylor Greene might have been on there for all we know. And they had a deadline. It had a January 31st of last year deadline. So those Republicans would have just filibustered until nothing, you know, the clock ran out. Yeah. And Trump would not allow that to happen. Right. Could you speak a little bit about that? I mean, even if they wouldn't have filibustered, let's say, and even if they would have established a truly bipartisan commission where you have equal membership between Republicans and Democrats on either side, you have equal subpoena power because the membership would have potentially been uh, folks like Jim Jordan, Louis Gohmert and, uh, and others who have been essentially, you know, come into the committee's focus. There's no way. Literally the seditionist. (laughs) Yeah. There's, there's no way in my opinion that you would be getting the level of thorough detail that we've seen presented and just the first hearings that we've had 
when Jim Jordan was covering the impeachment in the inquiry process. He was on one of the Judiciary Committees that was handling that. You know, there was so much infighting that went on during that time period that you would have hearings where an hour would be wasted completely just on process and complaints about certain things not being shown to Republicans before we went into the hearing. And it's impossible to discern how much of that is true in those moments. You know, they're given their five minutes to speak during a hearing. They can say pretty much whatever they like and, you know, hijack the conversation. So I think that the makeup of the committee that we have now is probably the best makeup that we could have gotten. And when we went down to a select committee instead of a truly bipartisan committee, when we had Speaker Pelosi, uh, you know, weigh some of the picks that were initially sent over to her for people appointed to that committee, which included Jim Jordan, you know, she, I think, rightfully rejected them and folks like Rodney Davis because she was aware that they had a history of not just questioning, questioning what they wanted to investigate, but also they didn't believe that there was fraud in the election. They, they believed there was fraud in the election as well. So they weren't even on board with what it was they were trying to investigate. They wanted to turn it into a situation where they could explore other threats that were being posed to lawmakers at the Capitol, which is valid, but that wasn't what that committee was supposed to be about. So I think we ended up with probably one of the better scenarios that we could have in terms of the membership of the panel. Yeah, and, and it's not a, you know, truly bipartisan, as you say, because it's not even, but it is a bipartisan committee. And, yeah. and McConnell nominated some people for that committee, I think designed to have Pelosi reject them, right? Because then he could say, oh, this is a partisan witch hunt. I don't think he expected two Republicans to to actually end up agreeing to join that committee. Or am I reading that wrong? You know, it's been some time now, and it was McCarthy who rejected these picks. It was him in the House who made these decisions about who, you know, who could come forward or not. And, you know, it's been a while, but I, I think that he knew that if he put somebody like Jim Jordan forward in particular, who had made headlines all over the place during the first impeachment with his obstruction during the hearings, I think that he knew, you know, what the game was. And I think that if he was actually interested in having appointed anybody to get to the bottom of this, then even if she would have rejected his initial picks, he would have come back with another round, but he didn't. He took his ball and he went home. So, you know, I think that, that speaks more about, you know, where he really was on that more than anything I could say, you know. And so one of those um, one of those uh, Republicans is Liz Cheney, and she is a co-chair of the of the committee. Um, and I, I am loath to say anything kind and laudatory about any Cheney. So maybe I'll let you do it, because I really don't think this committee would look the way it would be as effective as it has been if she hadn't been on it. Right. Yeah, I think having her voice as a Republican able to communicate to Republicans that still exist that are more moderate and not have completely given themselves over to the far right wing that has taken over a lot of this, you know, political atmosphere that we're in. I think that having her there was good to get cer certain centrists just to pay attention. I think having her as this, you know, uh, dynasty Republican, having her name attached to it meant a lot to a lot of people. I think that she has shown herself over the course of this hearing as actually being devoted to getting to the bottom of this. I think that it's really easy to lump every single politician, regardless of their party. I think it's easy to lump all of them into one category and assume that every single thing that they've ever done is not credible or it's not genuine or real or that they don't actually have a vested interest in something. And I can tell you that it's just not the case across the board in every instance. Sure, they're politicians, they politic, but there are other lawmakers that 
when the time comes, they actually do dig down and they want to get down into the dirt. And I think that's, that's what has happened with her. And I think that her willingness to just sort of come out against Trump, come out against McCarthy, come out against other Republicans who don't want to speak about it, says a lot. You know, I'm hesitant to heap praise on her, not just because of her historical record. Um, I'm, I'm hesitant to heap praise on her because I do think that there is certainly some political expediency there. I think that she sees an opportunity, perhaps in her mind, that there's a whole untapped wealth of Republicans who are anti-Trump Republicans that she can bring into her fold more and more as we go. I mean, it's cost her quite a bit. You know, she lost her leadership position in the conference and, you know, she's pretty much been cast aside by uh, the Republican media and the rest. But, um, you know, I think that having her there is important. I wish that Kinzinger wasn't retiring after this was all over. Um, I wish that he would actually be sticking around just to see, you know, what sort of uh, policies or effect he'll be putting into place as a person who was on board with this investigation. But I think, you know, you got to have those voices there because there are Republicans in America that do care about this. And it's good to have somebody there that they feel like, okay, well, I know for a fact I can trust this person because of, you know, my own uh, feelings or my own perceptions about the party or Republicans in general. Yeah, I think it's important to note that that Jeannie is facing a MAGA um, challenge in her primary, which is coming up in Wyoming. And it is an interesting bet to make, because if you're going to be if you're pro Trump, you, you have to cede to Trump. Right. And so all these guys, I know Tom Cotton, senator from Arkansas, said he's running no matter what. But they all occupy that same space. And there's no real space for an anti-Trump Republican, I think, right now. But right. pendulum swing. Right. And it really does seem that, that, that Liz Cheney is sort of positioning herself to be on the, sort of the, quote, the right side of history right now, yeah. which would give her some space uh, later on. And, and, and there's a certain amount of, you know, there's a lot of vitriol towards the Cheneys from, from the left and even from some of the center. And she's really negating that in a lot of ways because you have to be like, all right, she's, she may be awful on policy, but she's not going to destroy our democracy. Right. And it sort of takes away some of that, some of that power that Democrats may have against a Trumpy type Republican. So yeah, there's definitely a, a there could be that, that self-interest, but man, she's really like, she's really leaned into the job. And there's been a lot of times where Democrats have fallen into that whole, like, Oh no, we're not, we're not gonna, we're not gonna subpoena somebody to show up or we're not gonna refer, do a criminal referral. And it seems it's always Cheney who comes in and says, why the heck not? Right. It's it's the Republican who knows how to use sort of Republican, uh, bare knuckle tactics, right? like pushing these, you know, oftentimes timid Democrats yeah. to, to do the right thing. Yeah, no, I would agree with that, you know, and I also think too, there's another element in play. And I, I think that, you know, if you're in a situation where you have the committee chairman saying, we're not going to issue any criminal referrals and we're not going to get into it because we want to wait uh, for the DOJ to handle that, or we're going to leave it to them to figure it out. And then you have Cheney saying, you know, well, we haven't reached any conclusions yet. I think that there's a lot of things that are happening there. And I think one of them is that it's her political awareness that you could lose people right away with only two hearings under your belt. Uh, if you're yeah. already saying this, and I, I know that that might seem uh, a little, you know, maybe nuts to say, but I'll tell you, uh, just from the reactions I've heard from just regular folks out there, whether their awareness of it is greater or greater low, I think that that might have been part of it. I think it was a way to kind of keep people on a hook, I think. But 
honestly, there's probably more to it uh, with her sort of setting herself up in a future and placing a pretty big bet. Because let's say after this committee is over, they issue the recommendations and some legislation is developed that would prevent this from happening. And then on top of that, you get the DOJ involved. You know, she set herself up for a pretty good position and she would have the pick of the litter at that point in the Republican Party uh, and a whole new base potentially. So, you know, who knows what her real motives are? But I think that there's certainly an element there where she was genuinely offended by what happened. I think there were a lot of people that were genuinely offended. You know, I've talked to a lot of police officers about this who were with Trump up until January 6th um, and who still consider themselves conservatives or Republicans. But, you know, that was a line that was uh, a big one to cross for a lot of people. One more thing before we get into sort of the actual committee itself and what it is finding uh, when you talk about criminal referrals, people may not understand what exactly that means. Could you could you explain that? Yeah, sure. So basically what we would have here is a situation if the committee came upon evidence that it felt was indicative of a crime or a law being broken, they could essentially write up a piece of paper that says the committee has found evidence of a crime. We would like the department to look into this. Now, the Department typically- of Justice. Yeah, right. That's correct. Typically, criminal referrals are reserved largely for contempt proceedings. If you're not cooperating with Congress, that's one thing, as we've seen with some of the folks that have been involved here with January 6th. Um, But when it comes to prosecuting them, when it comes to anything beyond, you know, just establishing what the facts are, establishing what evidence might or might not exist, Congress is really limited with its power. So even if they drew up a criminal referral and said, we are so confident in the information that we've discovered that we would like you to look into this, it would be superfluous at this point. All of the documents that they have put together, all of the presentations that they are making, all of the arguments that they have made in court so far, fighting to get some of these records. They have said time and time again, we believe that there is an issue of criminality here. We believe that there's obstruction here. We believe there might be a conspiracy here or fraud. Um, And especially now with some of the new things that we've learned about uh, in the last week in terms of just the, you know, the big ripoff, the profiting that Trump was doing. Yeah, we'll get into that. Yeah, promoting that lie. But yeah, you know, um, I I think that that's pretty much where it stands. And so to be very, very clear, that a criminal referral is just asking the Department of Justice right. to look it's, into it. It can't, they can't even force the Department of no, Justice to do anything. No, and they've already done that. They've already asked them numerous times, you know, essentially in their court filings, asking, you know, the judge to review this for this information. And when the judge comes back, for example, with the John Eastman emails, the judge reviewed a fragment of the emails that John Eastman had between himself, Trump, and other people. And like John Eastman is one of the lawyers. We'll get into that a little bit more. One of the lawyers that was that was guiding Trump with a strategy of uh, of fake yeah. electors, among other things. Yeah. And so once the judge sort of looked at the lay of the land with the correspondence that he had, he felt, and this was his words, not mine, that there was, you know, more likely than not uh, a criminal element at play. It was a a coup in search uh, of legal theory was how Judge Carter in California described it. And so just sort of setting that up and establishing that. And getting that ruling, that favorable ruling, and then getting repeated favorable rulings, not just upholding what the committee stands for and what it does, but in its pursuit of that information as being a valid purpose. You know, I think that 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 speaks volumes about how legitimate the committee really is. 
and what it can actually do and not do. So that is uh, something that I think it would be nice. It would make a lot of people feel good. It might still be on the table to see them issue, you know, a document that says we have a criminal referral. And by the way, this is how little force of effect that document would actually have. They would only have to vote on it within their committee. And then they could just send it out to the department. So it's not like it's this big judgment call by everybody right. in Congress. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's unbelievable that's even controversial and you know the leading democrat in the committee is like no we won't even do that right i know i know and but you know honestly too like i think if you put it in the context of the last five years there was so much overstepping from the trump administration into other branches of government that the committee has really worked very hard to keep those separations of power very clean give themselves the best possible ground to start from because they know the second that they slip a toe out of line or they give Republicans any excuse to claim that they're wielding right. power, you know, they, they will take it. They went through this already with two impeachments. So I think they know, you know, what, what the score is. Yeah, no, that's, that's a, that's a, <laughs> that's a great point. And I'm actually struck, you know, on that theme, how little Republicans have so far in attacking the committee. It's just broad speaking. It's a kangaroo court. It's yeah. partisan, but they really haven't found anything to really sink their teeth into it. And maybe that has something to do with the fact that they can't even get their, their over, overarching theory, right? You know, some people are saying it's a false flag and Tifa, others are saying these are heroes and they're being steamrolled by the Department of Justice. Uh, so maybe that helps is that they still haven't found their narrative. Let's let's dig a little bit into the committee itself and, and the first two hearings. Has there been any you've been covering it like nobody, like nobody, like nobody. You've been in the weeds. Most yeah. of us haven't. Yeah. So has there been anything that has been surprising to you these first uh you these first two hearings and i mean both in in tone and presentation and how they're going about and presenting it and actually and also the substance of what's being presented sure so i think in terms of the tone and presentation like i said i wasn't particularly surprised because of the makeup of the committee this is the level i expected from the people that populate that panel you know we have a lot of experts especially with representative raskin who's a constitutional scholar you know we have people who understand what's at play here and so i expected it to be a very high level of discourse and that's what i've seen there's no room for distraction there's no room for spin um so it's it's been chugging along very well, in my opinion. I also am of the opinion that they have sort of ordered this, um, or at least initially have uh, begun to order this in a way that makes sense. You know, it's telling the story sort of as it happened chronologically, but feeding in other information about all of these different pieces that were happening simultaneously while this gambit to appoint alternate electors was going on, while Trump was actively promoting myth about voter fraud, while, you know, extremists were were preparing themselves to essentially buoy and support Trump uh, should the Insurrection Act be invoked, which is what, you know, Alma Rhodes and uh, Tario have essentially, or, uh, Henry Tario have essentially claimed, you know, in, the, in their cases. So I think that they're doing- hey, Who are they? Elmer Rhodes, Elmer Stewart Rhodes is the leader of the Oath Keepers. 
And that is the extremist group that was uh, charged, members were charged with seditious conspiracy. And they go to trial later this summer. Uh, It seems like both he and Henry Tario, who's the ringleader of the Proud Boys, which is a, you know, Western chauvinist extremist organization, they might have had some contact and some efforts planning these things together uh, in the lead up to January 6th. It's become more popular, that video of them meeting in the hotel room underground uh, in D.C., after Tario was uh, arrested in Washington for unrelated charges and then was released and told to leave, he went straight to a meeting to go meet Mr. Rhodes in an underground parking garage uh, and filmed it and all of that. But um, yeah, you know, I think that. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks yeah, guys. <laughs> that's, you know, if you want to commit a crime, you definitely. <laughs> but yeah. So I think that, um, you know, it's it's really interesting how they're weaving all of this together. And, you know, for a person who is, like you're saying, so, so far in the weeds, I sometimes come out of those hearings feeling like, well, was that it? <laughs> you know, because there's so much there. But you have to realize, like, this is such a massive story. They have to boil it down to where they're getting out the cogent points. They're getting out, you know, the important information, but they're making it so that people can really understand it and they can see the game for what it was. They can see the scheme plainly. And I think as we start to get into some of this testimony this week um, in particular, we will be seeing uh, uh, this whole story made a lot more clear for people and how really precipitously close we came to having uh, a dictatorship. So, yeah, uh, you might remember if you've been watching the hearings, the Proud Boys were the ones in technical gear, technical gear, pushing through the crowd in that train with their hands on each other's shoulders. So they would stay in formation, pushing in. Uh, They had plans. Uh, I don't think the committee has gotten into specifically what those plans were. Maybe in some of the court filings you've been looking at, Brandy, there's been more of that. In fact, yeah, is, is there more that, that we should expect on, on those guys specifically? You know, in terms of the committee exploring the extremism angle, I would be shocked if we did not hear more about what we have learned in terms of the charges against people who were charged with seditious conspiracy and how that fit in to the greater plan to overturn the election. You know, when I interviewed Nick Quested uh, for us, I think it was last week, I had asked him what his opinion was on this and if he felt that there was a direct and who's that who's that nick quested is the british filmmaker who was there recording the proud boys uh during the insurrection he was recording them prior to the insurrection working on an unrelated you know for a totally different film um and he said when he testified you know he was surprised that day when they had turned away from the speech that trump was giving and started marching toward the capitol but when him and i were speaking about this i'd asked him you know do you think that there was a seditious conspiracy that was operating between Trump and Rhodes and Tario. And he was of the opinion that, you know, there were a lot of things that came crashing to a head at the Capitol steps that day. There were a lot of different conspiracies that all came together. So I, I certainly err more on the side of that because I just haven't seen the evidence yet myself to directly connect Trump to Rhodes or Tario or members of these organizations. But I can tell you this, their defense, and both of them have pled not guilty, their defense um, has been in the past that, you know, they just wanted to be in D.C. to be prepared for Trump in case he inv- uh, invoked the Insurrection Act. I mean, it is a really ridiculous legal argument when you get down to it. It's 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 indefensible, in my opinion. I'm not a lawyer, but, you know, it's indefensible. But they sure are trying to defend that. 
you know, and they have a lot working against them because so many of their members have flipped and have given prosecutors lots of key pieces of information about what was going on that day. Is that is that information still is that emerging in, in court documents or is that still yes. to be? I think I think we're still going like right now. Um, the, last week was the most recent time I was looking into this. But, uh, you know, they're still really trying to power through discovery. There's a huge okay. amount of discovery. And so right now there's this. Uh, and they being the Department of Justice. Right. Excuse me. Yeah. yeah. The Department of Justice is powering through its discovery. And then the defense side is also looking at what it needs for exculpatory evidence to help their case so that they can okay. make their not guilty plea work. But there's I mean, they, they've been dragging their feet on that. The judge has been trying to push it along as fast as he can just to get this going for the summertime. But, yeah, you know, there's there's a lot more to come, I think. The how many hearings are there going to be total? Right now, we have six total that are scheduled. And as you might have heard today, the hearing for tomorrow, Wednesday, June 15th, was postponed. So it doesn't mean that we're getting, you know, no sixth hearing or that hearing will just disappear. There will probably be another hearing at a later time. But they were telling reporters today that the reason was because of delays, just trying to get it prepped, just trying to get the video evidence together. You know, it's a lot of work. I actually think they... It's been masterful, the use of video to illustrate the points. And technically, they've done a good job of, of making everything run. And people underestimate the logistics of how to make something that complex sort of operate that seamlessly. And so it's actually been an impressive job. And in the second hearing, they actually had to scramble, right? Because they one, one of their witnesses is... Bill Stepien. Yeah. Yeah, Stepien. <laughs> yeah. And so they had to depend on video testimony. So I assume that they had to, like, drag that out, you know, yeah. last minute. So that was a pretty... And they got it together within 45 minutes. So yeah. you know, not, not that bad. Not that bad. And, like, we so, also need to remember, too, there's still also members of Congress trying to work on other legislation. You know, there's other committees. There's other votes. There's other... Weird demands that have to be met you know so it's yeah. like unfortunately not everything stopped for the committee as much as i would have liked that to be the case so the first hearing seemed to be like the outline of what was to come they they sort of sketched out the preview of coming attractions and then they had extended video from the insurrection itself january 6 the breach of the capitol uh police being assaulted and uh and beat and and sort of set the kind of the tone this the second hearing focused on uh on you know, there's this whole bid on Fox News calling of, of Arizona, and I'm not quite sure I get the implications yet. Maybe you have some thoughts, sure. but the broader piece, and, and this is all, don't forget that part because, um, but the broader piece seemed to be, they kept, they made this really strong connection between Trump new, Trump new, Trump new, Trump new, right? And they had all these people saying they told Trump that he had lost the election. So what do you think are the significant it was a two parts. What is what is the significance of the Fox News Arizona bit and then the focus on what Trump knew? So I think that like, let's start with the easier one first. And I think the focus is on what Trump knew. This is important because while it's legally, I think, very hard to establish intent 
with somebody. One of the main arguments that you've been hearing against the probe's work has been, you know, um, well, essentially, there's no way to know what Trump was really thinking or doing. There's no way to, you know, maybe maybe something else was going on. And like, this is the defense that you get from people who want to, you know, say that the 187 minutes that he spent completely silent sitting in the Oval Office was somehow, you know, justified by by whatever reason. But I think that they're trying and, and to, to be clear. I just want intent mm -hmm. is a key piece of many criminal uh, right. of many crimes right. is that you have to have intended to commit the crime. Yeah. And that's it's hard to prove. Right. So Very. what you're doing is what people are thinking. You have to get in their minds. And if you can show again and again and again, which they did just in that one hearing, how so many, many times people came to Trump and said, listen, you know, we're looking at the intelligence. We've done a review of ourselves, And these are his own appointees. You know, these are his own people who months before he trusted to put them in these positions. His He's daughter, the right? attorney general, his yeah. campaign manager, wow. uh, Miller, the biggest a-hole in, Amer in America, <laughs> Jason Miller, like... I mean, everyone was telling him, you know, you don't, you're not going to win here. You can't win here. You've lost. And like Barr said, Bill Barr, the attorney, former attorney general said during his testimony, he was detached from reality. That was his quote. You know, Trump was detached from reality and that no matter what he said to him about the actual outcome, there was no convincing Trump of anything different. And I think that it's important to establish that uh, intent for the committee. I think it's also important for the committee to remind people who have been sort of lulled into the complacency of the Biden presidency of just how wild that time period was, just how committed Trump was to these falsehoods to promote this so that he could then actually trigger the you know the the steps in motion for the conspiracy to overturn the election you know this was the starting point for him as soon as he was convinced um that there was fraud everywhere and he real he ran with that i think personally you know having watched it and pretty much covered the White House every day leading up to that. Um, I think that it was very opportunistic. And he realized that that was the easiest way to sort of make his case that he, he should just stay in if it wasn't just a bald, you know, desire to remain in power no matter what. Yeah. And, and just a reminder, these people testifying um, that Trump knew, these are all awful people. They are all Trump's own people, right? We're not talking about and this is why when Trump cries that this is a partisan witch hunt, yeah, it's partisan because it's only Republicans and awful conservatives uh, like Jason Miller and, and, and Barr uh, basically saying, yeah, Trump knew. What does that, what, what are the implications of Trump knowing? The implications of Trump knowing are that he can be potentially charged down the road by the DOJ. They can they can put together, um, you know, an obstruction case. They could put together a fraud case. Yeah, speak about that because the committee actually got into that. So, like, the committee has uh, sort of zeroed in on something that I think here is more concrete, and that is, you know, did he break the law? by essentially funneling all of these donations that he collected from all of these email blasts and mailers up to 25 a day, the investigative council said on average, where he would ask people, hey, donate to this legal defense fund so that we can fight these Democrats from stealing the election. When in truth, he was funneling huge amount of that cash, I believe it was $250 million to yes. various other PACs that were completely unreleated, you know, um, that his Mark friends, his family. Yeah, right. And so, you know, to the rally itself, 
the funding to pay for the defense of his legal team, you know, it went to pay for the actual rally at the Ellipse on the 6th, a good portion of that. I think it was like $200,000 went to event strategies, I want to say, one of the companies responsible for organizing it. So I think, you know, just by setting this up and sort of showing what he knew, when he knew it, which is what we've been saying all the time, you know, this whole year, well, when did he know and, you know, what did he do once he knew it? Uh, well, he knew that he lost and then he decided to keep pumping a, a lie to the public anyway, which people can lie, you know, that's his right. But when you start lying about where your money is going that you're collecting from people, then you start to get into tax fraud, wire fraud, you know, possible campaign finance violations, which as we saw, you know, uh, some of that has been cracked down on a little bit more in the last few years. So, the, I mean, clearly the, the committee is moving towards, you know, the obstruction stuff and the, and the sedition conspiracy stuff. But is this a bit of Al Capone theory happening? Like, okay, if that stuff is a step too far, we can get them on the money stuff. I think so. I think that they're looking at everything that's on the table. I think that they, uh, I think that the committee is presenting all of the information that they have. You know, they've done more than a thousand interviews. They've collected more than 140,000 pages of records. So I think that that's exactly what it is. It's like, yes, sure. You know, the, the easy charges, the obvious stuff. Sure. We could look at that. But I think that they had, you know, they had a money team specifically dedicated to just looking at where the fundraising went for this rally. So, you know, in terms of what they have on that, that's that's how you want to set that up. And I do think that there's some truth in this Al Capone theory for sure. I think they could end up getting him potentially on something smaller that might not throw him in jail, but it might, you know, bar him from running for office, which would be the key thing here is just to keep this person away from any levers of power. The, and so let's go back to the Arizona bit then, because the committee spent the first half of the second hearing on the, the guy who made the call on Fox News. Yeah. And then they dug into what the reaction was amongst Trump's inner circle. Right. Who cares? Why does that matter? You know, I think that part of that, and this is just me, uh, you know, guessing what was here, because I don't, I don't have any insight into why they felt specifically it was necessary to have uh, this Fox polit uh, political news editor on. I think it was just establishing that, you know, this was even amongst his own, this was understood, you know, that this is what they made the call for because this was the real call. And I think that it's, it's really about just trying to lend credibility to this, to people who oh. might otherwise say, no, it's not credible at all. Not even, you know, if Fox said it, Fox said it. All right. First to call it. So I think that that's, Certainly part of it. That's where I would at least guess what's going on there. All right. So in other words, it's a, it's an extension of everybody was telling him he lost, even Fox so. News. And so, so. He, he couldn't even run to the safety of his own sort of ideological media bubble. Yeah. Or yeah. And when you get later on into this, and, you, you know, when, we, when I say later on, I mean later on in the timeline, when we get to the six, you know, you have people like Hannity, Sean Hannity, reaching out to him, you know, uh, to Mark Meadows saying, you know, you got to do something. This has to stop. You know, you had people that were at Fox who really knew behind the scenes what, you know, what was going on and were upset about what they were seeing uh, behind the scenes. You know, so I think that there there's something really to be said about showing that even these people that, you know, champion him all the time had some serious doubts about that. You know, do you have any sense why some of these Republicans testified to this committee? Because a lot of them did not. Yeah. And and some of these did so willingly and turned over documents willingly. Is it, is it a matter of principle? 
I don't know. I, I don't know. Even his own daughter, right? Even Ivanka. I think most cynically, and I'm I can sometimes be very cynical. I think it's oh, just please. a CYA situ situation. You know, if if you have federal prosecutors breathing down your neck who are bringing seditious conspiracy charges against people when a president has been incited for an insurrection. You know, D.C. is a funky town and you can do some pretty awful things and still keep working. But I think there's certain lines that when you cross them, you can't return from them because I will otherwise forever be connected to this thing. Um, I think that a lot of people didn't want to fight a subpoena from the committee. You know, I think a lot of people were fine just coming forward and giving them whatever they had because they felt, look, this is all I have. This is what I can tell you. And this is my part in it. You know, who's to say the motivations for this? But I think that a lot of it is self-preservation. I think when all of this is over and all of the documents come out, which, by the way, the committee said when it releases its final report, it will also release all of these documents that it has amassed with them, I'm sure with some redactions, but still, um, you know, when it's all come out, this will be in the history books and I think a lot of people who did not cooperate now and who chose instead to align themselves with a person who incited the insurrection you know um, history will not look kind on them so. there was there is a fair amount of focus on Rudy Giuliani former New York mayor and top um, Trump advisor he's, he's you know top seditionist on the fact that he was drunk on right. election night right is there, do you think there's a significance to that? Because again, whether he's drunk or not, he was a seditionist, who cares? Yeah, you know, I mean, me personally, do I care whether Rudy Giuliani is sauced when he's telling, you know, the president? I mean, sure, I would love it if the president's advisors were not intoxicated when they were giving him advice. <laughs> Come on. You know, this was, we knew what it was, you know, we knew what it was when we all signed up for this. And so, like, I think bringing that up might have just been a cheap shot a little bit. I think, <laughs> shows, I think it shows, you know, just how... Chaotic. Color commentary. Color yeah, commentary. I think it's chaotic and they want to show that, but also it felt like a little bit of a cheap shot to me. I'm not going. <laughs> Just to any... know. <laughs> yeah, no. And, and you know, it's funny because Giuliani uh, today, which is Tuesday, came out with a really angry response about he really wasn't drunk. Yeah. And I there might actually be a, a, a legal defense saying like, okay, I was drunk when I made when I made those statements. This and he was, just like squashed it. Yeah, yeah. This was part of the thing that I thought when they said that yesterday, I thought to myself, oh, don't create an opening where he can say he wasn't of sound mind when he gave him advice. <laughs> right. And then this is what they do. They come right up and they tell you what they're doing when they do it. They ruin it for themselves constantly. So, you know, there's a lot of horrible things that they manage to pull off, but there's a lot of stuff that they just tell on themselves. So if you're paying attention, you can catch them. And that's why I have, I think, a little bit more faith in the Justice Department, which is, you know, uh, peopled by many smarter folks than myself, many good prosecutors, people I would never want to be uh, find find myself in a room with, you know. So I I will not give up faith that uh, something could come of this, just because I think the evidence is so strong, and I think that there's a good chance that we have folks inside the Department of Justice who are looking at this very carefully and invested in upholding the law, you know, actual law and order. So we've done a lot of digging into the first two um, hearings. So I, I don't want you to put you in a spot and force you to have an answer. Uh, but just in, just in case, just, to, just to, for thoroughness, is there anything else in those first two hearings that really stands out to you and might be relevant as we move forward? You know, I think we covered a lot of the stuff that I would find most relevant. I think okay. that the really interesting hearings are coming up this week. I think when yeah, we start talk about that. 
Yeah. Um, I think that we're, we're expecting, first of all, on Thursday, this Thursday, the 16th, we're expecting to hear some testimony from people inside of former Vice President Mike Pence's circle. Ooh, so his, his legal counsel, his chief of staff. Mm -hmm. We're also going to hear from a former federal judge whose advice Pence took when he made his announcement on the 6th that he would not, you know, overturn uh, or he would not step in, essentially, and stop the count or delay the count. You know, this is going to be very key information because so much of the alternate elector gambit hinged on having Pence go along with that plan when it finally came down to it in the moment. And so I think when we get some insights from these people, it'll just pull back another layer and really show us, you know, the significance of all this. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that hearing. Brandy Bookman is a senior, uh, she's, a, she's a staff writer at Daily Coast. She is one of the, as you, <laughs> you could probably surmise after this conversation, one of the top experts on the January 6th commission and the sedition behind it. Brandy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I look forward to coming back when we have more news to share. Oh, my God. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Yeah, you bet. So that is this week's edition of The Brief. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, thanks to the entire Brief team, Carolyn, Paul, Walter, Kara, and Dorothy. I think every week I, I, I forget somebody, and I think I got everybody this time. Thanks to everybody who listens and is part of this battle as we fight for our democracy. We have, as, as the, today's conversation has, uh, has shown us, our very democracy is at risk. And we are in real danger if we let these people back into power, either in Congress or in the White House. So we have to fight this November. We have to fight in two years. And we have to keep fighting because these people aren't going anywhere. So thank you so much for being a fellow traveler in this fight for our democracy, for the values we all care about. That's the show this week. See you next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week.